Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. Today, our host, Dr. Lynn Kohick, is joined by Dr. Joy Moore. An ordained elder in the United Methodist Church, Joy serves as professor of biblical preaching at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. An ecclesial storyteller, she seeks to encourage theologically framed, biblically attentive, and socially compelling interpretations of Christian scripture in order to understand the critical issues influencing community formation in contemporary culture. Dr. Joy is the immediate past president of the Wesleyan Theological Society and an avid fan of books by David Baldacci and John Hart. When not teaching, she enjoys traveling, watching episodes of NCIS, and reading. Currently, she is reading the works of Octavia E. Butler and Lord Jonathan Sachs, and yes, she is fascinated by the Marvel Universe. Joy can be heard weekly on the Sermon Brave Wave podcast, and she tweets at Joy J. Moore. Hi, Joy. Welcome to the Alabaster Jar. Hi, Lynn. It's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I, I'm delighted that you agreed to come on the Alabaster Jar. I know we'll have so much to talk about. What I'm most excited about, though, is something that hasn't yet happened, but that is that coming in August, you are going to be teaching a class at Northern Seminary, and the class is called Women of Color in the Church, and you're going to be focusing on a particular area of your expertise, that is how ethnic identities are portrayed in the media and how that shapes our understanding of race and gender. And then you're able to take a theological reading of this, taking a look at the biblical text and how that should shape our identity. So I am so excited about this study. Talk a little bit about what you found in your research on ethnic identity as portrayed in the media. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited about this class uh, as well. It's a reworking of one of, 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 the, of my favorite courses to teach uh, because it juxtaposes the stories that are mediated through television uh, alongside novels, um, uh, largely but not exclusively fiction, um, alongside the biblical narrative of what it means to be human. And uh, what I love doing is playing with the idea uh, that uh, some people believing themselves to be white or needing to be considered white or now needing to be considered non-white, um, the very idea socially constructed in the 17th century to denigrate the humanity of persons um, that the rich and powerful wanted to make a permanent slave class has has become perfected now that 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 1600s project is is perfected now as racial identity um, maybe the second most important identity marker for most people um, but i digress uh, but what i love playing with is how those markers have been mediated to us through uh hollywood through uh, media uh, through the songs we sing, through the books we read, through the films we watch, and how we live into that. And then how a biblical narrative, how the biblical narrative gives us a different way of construing our identity and therefore living in the world. And I just, I love playing with these ideas. Joy, that sounds so fascinating. Can you give us a 
teaser maybe of your uh, film that you like to use or a novel that you like to use that really brings out the heart of this class? So um, basically uh, what uh, I do is uh, I use one of the things I use is a, is a book uh, called uh, um, it's iconic. I think it's called iconic. And, um, uh, and what the author does is she looks at uh, the various uh, um, images uh, that uh, have been the strong black woman. And then uh, I look at uh, some uh, stories of personal stories of like my grandmother who was uh, ordained uh, an ordained minister, but also women of some uh, uh, stories of women in history um, who uh, have been um, like like for example Harriet Tubman, um, and I'm stumbling over this question because as I wrote the syllabus, uh, I had just seen the story of Venus uh, and Serena Williams' dad, and um, was going to use it because it's used in the book. Uh, um, uh, one of the one of the descriptions is the person of Venus. Uh, I think it, it's referencing a poem of who she is. Um, but now, obviously, as we record this, there's a bit of controversy post that movie, and I've got to decide whether or not I want to talk about what that does um, because that obviously controversy is more about black men. Um, uh, but uh, what does it mean for us to tell our story as Christian women? And yes. um, uh, so, yeah. uh, so honestly, I'm rewriting it right now because I'm trying to figure out how to how to make that how flip. to navigate. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah you know, yeah. and I was talking with someone. I, I didn't see the Oscars live, but of course, I've heard now about Chris Rock's comment and Will Smith's response to that. Um, but one of the things that struck me, I was talking with a younger woman, a white woman, but she said, here it is that uh, two of the most famous women in the world, Venus and Serena Williams, and my husband and I were fortunate enough to actually see Venus play once live. Wow. I mean, just amazing. And I, yeah. they are my heroes. They're just unbelievable. Um, but, the, um, but here we have two famous women and it's their dad that Hollywood makes the movie of, you know, exactly. and you just think, you know, oh, wow, wait, what's going on here? Exactly. Can't we get a break, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, my. Exactly. Well, so have... and, and that that becomes that becomes a lot of tension in the story uh, in uh, uh, in storying our identity um, because and and. I talk about this all the time, but it's it's how the culture um, um, edits our conversations, and we don't even realize that we are talking in the rhythm and in the words, uh, and and even in the imagination that the culture has scripted, when it's actually the task of the church to rescript it, and that's where the class will turn into what actually is the voice of women in ministry. Um, what does it mean to read? Um, uh, for example, what does it mean to study the Bible from the interpretation of a woman of color or to read uh, hit biblical history from a woman of color? Um, because it's a different reading when you're reading it not against the text, but reading it to say, what is the text saying and allowing the text to critique our own lives. And right now the culture is saying we can't do that. 
culture is saying we have to read against the text. And so my desire in this class is always to have uh, Christian, the next generation of Christian leaders to be able to say, um, how is it that this biblically mediated identification is so much more promising than the cultural identification that's been mediated to us? So I kind of gave the plot of the, the course away, but that, 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 oh, that's, that's good though. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, no, that uh, that's so exciting and so necessary, so necessary now. Uh, mm -hmm. Questions about who who we are, uh, and society uh, can be very eager to tell you, um, but we've always got to circle back and say, okay, what is God telling us? Um, explained us who we are. Yeah, yeah. Well, you have worked at Asbury Theological Seminary and Fuller Seminary and Duke Divinity School. You've focused on your area, of course, which is uh, biblical preaching. Um, you've uh, worked in practical theology and also in uh, African-American church studies. Um, and, you know, you, you've accomplished so much. I'd love to hear how, how do, do these areas of preaching and practical theology and then African-American church studies, how do those three connect and kind of enrich each other? So uh, uh, interestingly, uh, I often say that my uh, resume, uh, at least the beginning of my resume, uh, resembles my birth certificate more than my academic study. Uh, and, and that is because I've been uh, the associate dean of African-American church studies programs. Um, I started out as a uh, chaplain for black students as, at, a, at a college. And, and, and so my birth certificate is how I got in the door. Uh, and um, but I was raised uh, in in the black church. Um, I was educated in uh, public school in inner city Chicago. So my teachers were all were were not all not all were largely African American, and uh, and so. Um, my life is this uh, interweaving of the academy and the church. And the way that we professionally live that out is uh, practical theology. Uh, uh, that, that's the life of what it means to live as a Christian in the world, is to practice our theology, uh, to allow the... Um, uh, for us as Christians, the biblical narrative, our religious uh, tradition, to inform um, how we respond to the situations in our lives. And um, the way that, if we go back to um, the class that, that I'm preparing, uh, the way that we communicate that uh, in the church has largely been from the pulpit. We call that preaching. And so um, th there's, there's your braiding together of those three, you know, it's, it's who I am and the context I was uh, formed in uh, through the church uh, in the academy, because, uh, you know, the first thing I did after going to church was I went to school, you know, <laughs> you know, you're five years old and your parents send you off to these strangers and you find out your parents aren't the most brilliant people on earth. Uh, <laughs> I, I've, I've, I've outgrown that. I, I realized my mom really was the most brilliant person on earth. Isn't that funny how they you, they start out the most brilliant, then you get a little older and they're like, ah, I don't know. And then you circle back around. No, nope, yeah, that <laughs> they definitely are. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, so that journey, though, becoming a pastor and also in academics, um, were there 
some moments where you really wondered, wow, is it worth it all? Because I can't imagine that you didn't hit some um, uh, maybe roadblocks or hurdles or barriers. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit just about your journey as you moved uh, into higher education and in the church? Uh, sure. Uh, interestingly enough, um, uh, my story is not the typical story. I like to say that I was, I was born in a gap in history. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm of the age, um, uh, and I think you can relate to this, where the promises of the civil rights movement were, um, were not only within reach, but we were actually tasting them. Um, and yet the reality of the divided world that we lived in was very much uh, my life experience. So uh, my uh, experience was strange, you might say. Um, uh, I said when I was five years old, my, my parents sent me off to elementary school. Well, the school that I attended was across the street from a non-denominational community church right in my neighborhood. And my family's Baptist, and so we had been attending a church that we drove to. So I didn't go to Sunday school um, because we would go together as a family uh, for the 11 o'clock uh, worship. And uh, I'm now <clears throat> grown enough at five to attend my own school. And I realized that if I was mature enough to go to my own school, that I was mature enough to go to my own church. So I informed my parents that I would attend this church across the street from my elementary school. And my parents, recognizing my maturity, allowed me to attend this church where my aunt attended. <laughs> but at okay. five years old, there, there I didn't go. recognize yeah. that connection. I thought I was grown. <laughs> but uh, the pastor of that church was a woman. So... I was privileged to be spiritually formed under a Orthodox Bible teaching um, a woman pastor. And the Sunday school teachers there, many who were also public school teachers, uh, not at, in my public school, but they were, and um, they taught us our responsibility as Christians. So it wasn't so much that I now had this vending machine God in the sky uh, with a promise of some, you know, life after death, but it was the expectation of being an ambassador for Christ right now, right here. And I took that seriously. And so um, when I was 13, uh, I accepted a call to ministry uh, because I thought that's what you do as, as a Christian. And um uh, my mom, a uh, um, wise woman that she was, checked me to make sure I wasn't trying to be like my grandmother because my grandmother was ordained in the Baptist church. And so my mom, she kept saying, you know, are you really sure this is what God wants you to do? And, and, and she knew that I wanted to be a teacher. And uh, so um, when, I was, uh, when, I, when I started high school, I found out that if you say you're going to be a preacher, you're not going to be popular. So I renegotiated the contract with God and said, I'm going to be a teacher, right? Not a preacher. Right? And um, then I went on, got my degree in elementary education and in mathematics. I was teaching uh, um, middle school in Evanston, Illinois. 
and realized that the most important thing I could do with these uh, sixth graders was not to get them into algebra. Uh, and so I renegotiated with God and I said, okay, I will get back involved in church. And my pastor um, of Second Baptist Church in Evanston, Illinois, sent all the ministers in training to seminary, which is not always true in the Baptist church, uh, especially then. So um, that wasn't on my contract with God. It was like, I wouldn't quit teaching and I wouldn't move. So going to school, you know, that spur rabbit back in the briar patch, you know, and I said to my pastor, okay, so what else do I have to do? And um, he told me this later, which is kind of interesting because it impressed him that going to school was not a roadblock for me. Um, but the assistant pastor who was over all of the ministers in training was a woman. So if you're hearing this journey I've been on, I've always been spiritually formed under the leadership of women and men who approved of women in ministry. And, and so uh, I, I, it was a gap. And the wall that I came up against was because of the timing that I entered ministry, the expectation was that I would be the African-American voice. And uh, surprisingly, I was uh, very early recognized that my call was to cross-racial ministry. Uh, and uh, so uh, I joined the United Methodist Church, was ordained in the United Methodist Church, and served um, as the first African-American woman to be ordained in West Michigan, um, the West Michigan side of, side of the, the state. Uh, and um, so up until my last congregation uh, before uh, I came to Luther, um, all of my congregations uh, had been um, uh, identified as white congregations. And so I lived more trying to speak as a Christian where folks were asking me to define myself differently as an African-American. And that was more the pushback that I got, uh, my experience. Um, than being a woman, which I realized when, when I was um, the director of women and ethnic ministries at Asbury, my first role at Asbury, birth certificate. Yes, <laughs> um, yes. Um, but there were women there, you know, at this school in Kentucky who were from Alabama, Mississippi, North and South Carolina, and Texas. And they kept saying to me, I have never met a clergy woman who actually has pastored as the solo pastor of a church. And I was ordained by a female bishop. You know, I grew up in a gap in history. <laughs> so um, are there struggles? Yes. Uh, I recognized um, uh, probably, I'm a reader and uh, I, I've often learned by entering the lives of others uh, through story. And uh, I was introduced to the writings of Isabel Kuhn uh, by one of my prayer partners, a woman by the name of Beth Coppage. Uh, and uh, in her second book, uh, In the Arena, uh, uh, Kuhn describes her trials as a missionary, as that of a Christian on display. And, and that really fit um, the way that I had been raised in my church to be an ambassador for Christ. Uh, to be on display. And um, uh, reading her story, uh, 
I read a lot of stories of missionary teachers who went to places that men wouldn't go. Okay, that's a bit of an exaggeration. Um, but it, in my juvenile reading, it seemed that teachers and Christians worked in areas where people were not always like those people in their primary community. And they had to respond to trials with courage and grace. Uh, another book I read uh, was uh, the uh, story of Anne Hobbs Purdy, um, uh, who um, at 19 years old um, was teaching in 1927 in Alaska. Uh, that book is called Tisha, it's her uh, biography. And again, it's a story of a woman of faith uh, who goes among a people very different from her uh, to teach. And these women, Kuhn uh, later in my life and then Tish, uh, uh, Hobbes uh, earlier in my life, resembled the women in my community, the African-American teachers and preachers that had shaped my life. And um, they taught me that if you're going to be in the arena, uh, you're gonna have trials and struggles. And uh, those trials and struggles are not a test. It's just the reality of living in a fallen world. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you stand. And I haven't always done that perfectly. Um, I've always had a temper and um, I believe in the grace of God because God has certainly calmed my temper. I'm not always as immediately a re reactionary uh, as I once was. Um, and, and I try to live out of that, you know, how do we find a conversation space where we, sh that where we share ideas and in that sharing, we also can bridge into the areas where we're different, but we don't start at that difference. I find the struggle um, begins when we start at our points of difference and that we build community and relationships when we start at our, at our shared points of agreement. You know, Joy, I'm just going to jump in here. This is serene for our listeners that are listening to this episode. You're talking about individuals right now following mm -hmm. God and, and the challenges, the struggles, the hope that's in each of our stories. And I can't help but thinking of the story of the church as well mm -hmm. and the parallels that I hear in what you're describing. Um, you're a UMC pastor. You've been serving as an associate or senior pastor at several churches since the late 80s. And so you've seen the story of the church unfold over um, these past decades. And I wonder, as you've seen what the church has faced and gone through, what do you see today that um, maybe concerns you? Where do you see hope for the future? Uh, just tell me a little bit about what you see unfolding in the story of the church. There should be concerns. <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> Serious. <laughs> Seriously, seriously, um, you know, my concerns are how often we as a church, um, like all humanity, are seduced uh, to settle for um, uh, replications of the promises of God. Um, we, we tend to believe that we can have goodness without God, uh, that we can have justice without Jesus. And, you know, that's the very first story in scripture, you know, where God has given 
uh, humanity, the entire world as a playground and one prohibition and humanity's full attention is on that prohibition. The, and, and, and that story is God forming a people. I, I appreciate the way you caught that, Serene, um, because our world likes to talk about our individual selves and our, our individual journeys uh, and lift up individual lives. Um, but the only time in all creation that God said, mm, not like this, is when God created the human alone. Hmm. So from the very beginning, God has been forming a people with whom God's spirit would so evidently abide that we would recognize that God is and that God is good and that God is great and that God hasn't given up on the world. And, and that's the hope is that we keep rehearsing that first scene. I mean, the story of Adam and Eve's child, Cain, is the very same thing. He misses the fact that he's on speed dial on God's phone. I mean, God's <laughs> text messing Cain when he should be sending a message to Abel saying, hey, dude, when your brother invites you over for dinner this weekend, tell him you're busy. But, but, but Cain is so caught up in what God might be doing for Abel that he misses all that God is doing for himself. And, mm. and he takes it out against his brother. We keep doing that. It, it's, like, it's like we're compelled to reject the lessons learned by previous generations. And yes. the church is the very example, one, of a community who have the gift of the stories of others, those who sit beside us in the pew and that great cloud of witnesses who have gone on before us. And if we're willing to learn the lessons in community, we don't have to make the same mistakes. And on the days that we're the weakest, we can lean on the shoulders of someone who has already walked that path. And, and, there, and there's my hope, is that God truly is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that God, that God hasn't given up on forming a people with whom God's spirit so evidently abides that the world has hope in the midst of the horror. Yes. Amen. So good. It's so challenging to think that we live in a time where we're more connected than ever. And yet we seem so disconnected at times from this bigger narrative, the stories of our history of, of our brothers and sisters. We can fall into just isolation just in general, but definitely in the church and forget our roots, forget where we've come from, the even the shoulders of the people that we stand on that we can so quickly forget that. So thank you for reminding us. Mm, thank you for summing it up that way, that we do indeed stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. And we are supposed to live so that others find us faithful when they look back at us. Mm. And, uh, you know, you, you just did a plug for the class because the reason <laughs> that we are so focused on our separateness is because the very media that is captivating our imagination is designed for us to find ways to be othered from mm -hmm. one another. Mm -hmm. And the biblical story is a story of God rejoining us into a community of peace and life and abundant joy. So good. 
Amazing. So our listeners should come study at Northern so that they can learn from you in this class this August, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Please come. Please come. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, and in your lifetime, Joy, you know, you have, you've received uh, well-deserved rewards, uh, awards. I'm thinking of, um, for example, just one lifetime achievement award that was granted by Christian's for biblical equality, which is a great organization. And part of, I'm sure part of their, uh, part of what they looked at was how, as you were part of communities, you looked around to see, well, how can I help in a community? And what really stood out to me uh, was your working closely in the community in Flint, Michigan, when they had the water crisis, which became national news and rightly so. Um, how, maybe talk us, talk with us a little bit about that experience, including uh, how the church might engage with what was a public health crisis, you know? Um, what, what lessons did you, did you learn that, that might help us um, as we try and minister and be aware of the wider um, community around what- us? Yeah. What is a public health crisis? The the um, consequences of that decision. Um, uh, April 25th marks the eighth anniversary of when the water was switched and all of this began. And right now, um, uh, Flint, Michigan is in the midst of uh, trials related to that. And um, it's, again, um, it's it's again not learning uh, from one another. I really appreciate the way you framed the question because Flint, Michigan was supposed to be the example of the American dream. I mean, people literally came from all over the world to work in Flint because of the automotive industry. And it was a good job with good benefits. And yet in that city where folks came from all over the world, the practice of segregation in this northern city was perfected. And and then as um, the uh, uh, financial productivity that causes uh, uh, the failure of one model of uh, of a company and causes that company to leave an area, um, and if a city is completely dependent on that company, um, in this case, the automotive industry, their departure is the collapse of that city, right? And with racism, the ability to be able to move um, is not as easy. And for the folks in Flint, um, many of them had achieved that dream. So they had these really nice houses. Um, They had, um, uh, they, they were at the point of being ready to live out uh, their retirement. And um, at at the church I served uh, at the time, um, the majority of the people, the church probably of about 200, the majority of the people were over 80. And and I'm not exaggerating when I say that. So they were living the end of their life. When you're 80 years old and your children are around the country, you can't just pick up and start over again. And the result of that water crisis meant that if you lived within 
the city limits. I don't care if you had been a CEO at um, uh, uh, General Motors or if you had been a janitor in a public school. If you lived within that city limits, when you turned on your tap water, it was life-threatening. And um, when I was there, um, uh, uh, it was five years, uh, uh, four years after it began, um, half of the city had been deserted. And, and you could see it. If you go to the other side of town, these huge homes, these beautiful residences. And what you know is that those were the residents of the people who were the CEOs because they could pick up and move. And then you go to the other side of town and these are the line workers. These were the public school teachers. These were the folks who um, couldn't just pick up and move. And um, one of the things that was exposed by the water crisis is that it wasn't just in Flint. I mean, this is happening all over. Um, we found out that it was happening in Kalamazoo. We found out that it was happening in other states, uh, in the East Coast. Uh, I think in the state of Pennsylvania or, or New Jersey, there were cities that were having the same problems with lead. And yet we don't talk about them. And, and, and as I said, as I began this, it's ongoing because the ramifications of what happened to those children, um, they're going to live with those uh, the rest of their lives. Um, uh, and the loss of lives, uh, people literally died. Uh, and then um, the, the distrust in the administration, in the political leaders, in the political system, even in the medical system. Um, um, oh gosh, I forgot the name of the book now. I think it's, um, oh, I'm going to have to ask you to put this in the notes or something because uh, the woman who, who wrote the story that actually exposed, the doctor who wrote the story, uh, what the eyes don't see, I think it's something like that. Um, she's a pediatrician. And she told the story that members of the black community had been telling by then for, for years. And they listened to her, but it cost her everything. And, and she had to be willing to put her career, and she, she, she was young, but she had to be willing to put her career, her um, reputation uh, on the line. And, and because she was a woman of uh, Middle, uh, Middle Eastern descent, it was very easy for her to be maligned. And all she did was to tell the truth that the medical department and the, um, uh, the um, government was hiding. Um, so I know I kind of went around what your question was, but the pain of serving there um, was realizing that we can't trust the very people we should trust. And the joy of serving there was, like I said, my church was largely people over 80. And while they couldn't lift the uh, crates of water, they opened their church and made it possible uh, so that every week over 300 families could get water, could get food, uh, could get clothing, uh, could get what they needed to sustain their life. And they had actually been doing that without the water they had been doing that prior. That was one of the ministries of the church. 
And after the water crisis, several members of the church or volunteers in that project got hired by the city so that the city could do it more wide. And there, there were actually um, um, uh, three churches. Um, ours is the United Methodist Church, a non-denominational church, and I believe a Baptist church that uh, on uh, three days a week, uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday, uh, provided water. Uh, and, and to see the church uh, offer that life-sustaining gift, um, it just reminds me of what we have to do as a people of God, um, despite what our social uh, leaders fail to do. Well, and as you uh, are saying that, it's like your church was in practice of helping. Yes. It, it didn't, it's hard to flip the switch when there's a crisis. Um, but if you are already in that habit of looking outward and serving others, then a crisis happens and it's like you're already in your stride. I think that is, um, yeah, that's a life lesson. I know for me, um, the practicing uh, the habit of reading scripture daily or as regularly as I can, even if I miss a day or two, but it keeps you in, in the word, in the habit of the word, because you can't, when a crisis hits, and they always do, at some point they, they will hit, you can't immediately turn on scripture knowledge, you know? I mean, it's, right. it's like you're, uh, you're nurturing um, the, the word so that it, it can meet the needs as, um, as they come up. I know um, as we finish up here our time, I wanted to, to talk with you about how you nurture your own uh, spirit. Uh, you, we've talked a little bit about maybe doing retreats and that sort of thing. What, what do you do, Joy, to, to keep your joy? <laughs> uh, thank you uh, uh, for allowing me to share that uh, because you're absolutely right. Uh, one of the one of the things about what it means to be religious um, is that it is to practice. Um, when I was a kid uh, learning to play the piano, I practiced religiously. And that didn't mean that I was learning to play hymns. It meant my mom made me practice every day. And, um, and that's what it means to be religious. It means to cultivate habits. And so you're absolutely right. Um, I, I love uh, how um, when uh, we talk about Amish grace, when uh, the children in, in uh, Lancaster County in the Amish school were, were killed, that the immediate response of that community was to forgive and, and to extend grace uh, to the killer's family. Um, it wasn't because they got together and had a meeting and said, what should we do? It was because that was who they always were. And so my practices, um, so that when I do hit a wall, when my temper does want to flare, when I enter into a challenge, my practices are indeed reading scripture um, so that I have the imagination of what God has done in the past. And it makes it possible for me to recognize glimpses of where God's peace and promise is evident in the present. And um, I remain in community. I'm, I'm single and uh, I'm an only child. And so I have prayer partners. Uh, I'm a United Methodist, so I'm a Wesleyan. I'm part of a band. Uh, and uh, one of my, two of, two of the members of my band are actually in Ukraine or were in Ukraine right now 
and, and so the the circumstance that's happening over there is very real to me because I've been watching them and trying to find out if they're safe and waiting to get a text message from them. Um, but that moment for them right now of crisis, um, while I'm safe, you know, is I'm offering them strength because the time is going to happen when I'm not safe for whatever reason, and they will offer me in return. And that's what being in community is about. So practicing being in community, um, I think scripture says the regular gathering together, um, breaking bread, which is not a problem for me. I love eating. (laughs) (laughs) And I love the fact that, that scripture is actually not about a wafer and a shot glass, but it's actually about sitting at the table together with others and sharing your story, which brings us full circle for everything that we've talked about. I was raised in community and I try to practice being in community intentionally, a community of people who read what I read, not just the Marvel Universe comics, but who read scripture with me so that our imagination is filled with the hope and promises of a faithful God. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Joy, for visiting with me here and Serene on the Alabaster Jar. It's just been so great to talk with you. And I'm excited that you'll be at Northern this August teaching your class, Women of Color in the Church. And we're just so grateful for how the Lord has has used you and has uh, blessed us through you. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm very grateful to have this opportunity to talk with you. Wonderful program. Uh, If this is your first time listening, keep listening, listening to the other sessions, uh, wonderful interviews you've been doing. I'm just honored to be among them. Thanks, Joy. We're so glad to have you here. Hey, Alabaster Jar listeners, thanks for joining us for today's conversation with Dr. Joy Moore. If you would like to learn more about Joy, you can find her online at the Sermon Brainwave podcast and on Twitter at Joy J. Moore. In just two weeks, we are celebrating one year as the Alabaster Jar, and we are so grateful for you, our listeners. So be sure to subscribe, share this podcast with a friend, and get ready for a special episode coming up in just two weeks. We'll see you back here next Tuesday for a brand new episode of the Alabaster Jar.